0: Some of the comments that I just want to share briefly before we head to Q&A come more from my background in counseling. So in talking to uh, same-sex strugglers, uh, talking to parents, talking to family members, uh, talking with people who struggle with gender dysphoria. So I just want to offer you guys a few things that have been helpful to me in my own practice and perhaps they can be helpful to you as well. One of the first things uh, is to check your own heart to check your own heart. Von Roberts, uh, who I think is a fellow Brit like Sam, uh, says that when it comes to the topic of homosexuality that we can either have an unquestioning yuck or an unquestioning yes in terms of our approach. That some of us might be really ready to say yes and capitulate to the culture while others of us, similar to the pastor that Sam referenced earlier, might have an unquestioning yuck, complete and total disgust. And I think part of approaching any conversation with someone who struggles is first doing a little bit of internal work yourself, of rightly checking your own heart, confessing sin, confessing prejudice, confessing bias, making sure that we rightly are disgusted with our own sin more so and thus deal with it before we try to go and address the sin of another individual. So checking your heart, I think, is an important part before we Even have some of these conversations. Uh, Number two is to be careful with your language. To be careful with your language. Uh, I was in a counseling session with a young man. He was probably 17 or 18 years old. And the presenting issue had been anxiety, and his grades were failing at school, and he was losing friendships and struggling with depression. That was kind of what the presenting issue was, at least on his, on his paperwork and what his mom had brought him in for. Uh, as we talked a little bit later, it came out that one of the struggles that he had amongst others was just a, a struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, he had never talked to his parents about it, and he related a story to me about it that had caused him to kind of hide that part of his life away. Uh, he had recently had an uncle who had also come out as gay. And as they were kind of sitting around the dining room table one night at dinner, his mom had made a comment to the son, and she had said, I'm so thankful to God that none of my kids are ever going to turn out like your uncle. And in that moment, right, what what that young son had heard, again, whether the mom intended it or not, But what that son heard at 17 or 18 was that it was not safe for him to talk about his struggles. It wasn't safe for him to talk about the things that were going on in his life because his mom was so thankful that he was, quote unquote, not like this uncle. And sometimes I think that as Christians, we can use our language in ways that don't build up and that don't edify Sometimes we can use language that is both ignorant and indifferent to the setting uh, that we are given. And if you read the Proverbs at all on communication, you realize that the Proverbs have a lot to talk about content, about what we actually have to say, but that the Proverbs actually more often than not are more concerned with how we say things, that the delivery a lot of times impacts the ability to receive the content. And so when we're thinking about our conversation, right, are we someone who's going to speak rashly like the thrust of a sword, or are we going to be like the one who has the tongue of the wise who can bring healing? Are our words going to be like apples of gold and settings of silver? Are we going to be like somebody who's going to rip off a garment from a person who is very cold, right? And are we going to be a person who, who doesn't have a timely word that is fitly spoken, and so sometimes when we're thinking about these conversations, just being mindful of our language, being mindful of how we talk about these things, how we talk about other people, right? That we're talking about actual individuals. We're talking about people who have names, not just positions or political posturing. Number three, listen to people's stories. Listen to people's stories. John Frame says that we're all, and if we want to be good at ministry, we need to learn how to exegete. He says three things. We need to be good exegetes of Scripture, be good exegetes of the world that we live in, and be good exegetes of other people. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we might have a little bit of a head knowledge about Scripture. We know what Scripture has to say. We think we know the world. But sometimes I find that we have really low skill when it comes to actually knowing other people and exegeting other people. I won't surprise you that one of the number one things that people come into counseling for is that they've never been heard and that they've never been understood. And that part of what counseling does for people is it provides for them a safe environment to share, to talk, and to be heard. David Augsburger, who's a psychologist at Fuller Seminary, says that to be heard is so close to being loved that for most people they're virtually indistinguishable. And I found that oftentimes to be true, that to actually practice the ministry of presence, to sit with people, to listen to them, and to hear their stories, that that's one of the most impactful things that you can do. Um, One of the things that when you listen to people's stories and especially listen to LGBT people and their stories is that what you actually oftentimes find is that concerns or conversations about sexuality oftentimes actually recede into the background and that what you're left with are actually quite common and very human concerns. Things like anxiety, sadness, broken relationships, complex trauma, abuse, hardship. Disappointment, unmet expectations Just a few weeks ago I met with a lesbian couple at our counseling practice And uh, they'd come in And the presenting issue was They were having trouble with their son Their 12-year-old son He'd been acting out at school He had autism And uh, he was becoming difficult to handle at school so much So that he had actually gotten suspended And the moms came in And their presenting issue was what? They're heartbroken right? They've got difficulties in their home. They feel disconnected from their son. They're struggling to know how to parent, right? There's, there's one approach, right, that can kind of come into that, and immediately the first thing that I could share, it might be a true thing, right? I could make a comment about their current living situation. I could make a comment about their sexuality. I could make a comment about how they're not living in accord with God's design for family. Or, right, I also have another opportunity to to do what? To listen, right? To build rapport by understanding their concerns and using that as, as a bit of a doorway for gospel hope. If you have a Bible, turn over to John chapter 4 because I think we get to see the master at work in this. It's one of my favorite passages, but it's John, John 4, the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and I think, again, he's the wonderful counselor, so whenever we see him in action, we want to pay attention. But it's a wonderful story, wonderful narrative of how Jesus just takes people where they are. He hears them. He listens to them. He, he gets to the core of what their need is. Look at verse 16. Again, remember, won't catch you up to, we'll catch you up to speak, as I'm assuming you're familiar with it, but they've been having this conversation about living water And in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Right? It's fascinating that that's kind of where Jesus leaves it. Right? Jesus does not go in and give her a position paper on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He doesn't call her out for living in uh, an adulterous relationship or in a non-marital relationship. He doesn't chastise her about her sexual ethic or about her lack of sexual morals. He doesn't guilt her. He doesn't shame her, right? He, he's after something that he realizes is not completely disconnected from her current living situation and her current marital situation, but that it would be a better way to approach it if you were to actually go after something deeper. So let's read verses 19 and following, and I want you to see if you can hear the word that I think he's actually after. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe in me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Right? I mean, you hear it, right? What is, what is Christ most after in this interaction? He wants her to what? He wants her to worship him. Right. The, the question about her current living situation The question I think that he's asking her about Hey, go call your husband Is more of a question to reveal to the woman That she has been pursuing relationships As her living water To get meaning and affirmation and acceptance But that every single relationship In fact, all five Plus the one that she's currently living with It's just not meeting the need Right? It's not connecting And what Jesus is trying to say to her by asking her the question, which then exposes her current state, is saying, listen, I think you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. I think that you have been looking for something that I am the only one, actually, that can actually provide that for you. What I'm after is I want you. I want your worship. I want your heart. We know the end of this story, right? The Samaritan woman leaves, and she goes, and she says, listen, come here, a man who is what? Come here, a man who, is, who knows everything about me, who's told me everything about myself. And the implication is that he didn't move away from me, right? But that he kept talking to me and that he stayed with me. And so when we think about listening to people's stories and when we think about meeting LGBT people where they are at, I find oftentimes that we are probably much more prone to speak than we are to listen right? We are not a people like James who are slow to speak, right? We are very quick to speak. We have platitudes. We have cliches. We have statistics. We have, we have little nuggets that we can't wait to unleash in our theological shotgun, right? To kind of to give over to them. But what we fail to do is we actually fail to just see the individual in front of us. And I venture to guess that oftentimes if you were actually to just sit with these people, to listen to their heart, to listen to their concerns, that you actually might be surprised that you might have more in common with them than you are different. And that that opportunity then to build rapport actually provides a much better pathway and context for the gospel. Uh, Fourthly, uh, identity is a fruitful topic to explore. When you're thinking about conversations, again, a lot of the conversations sometimes can, can center around sex, sexual orientation, questions of that nature, But I actually find that identity is the more fruitful topic to explore. And one of the things that, at least within a counseling relationship, that I like to try to do is to begin to try to expose how fragile and how ultimately incoherent an identity that is only built on your feelings and your sexual expression is. So one of the things that I'll have an individual do is I'll just say, hey, we'll get out a we'll get out a, a piece of paper, and I'll just say, I want you to write down on a piece of paper for me just every aspect of who you are, every aspect of your identity. Uh, you're a female. You're in tenth grade. You are a cheerleader. You go to church. You you know you're a sister. You work at a local fast food restaurant. You like to and. Just try to list out every single aspect of their identity, heterosexual, bisexual, whatever it might be, right? And then I say, I I want you to circle, right, which one of these things, right, is strong enough to build your entire identity on, right? Is there one thing on this huge list of, let's say, 20 or 30 things that that you would want to build your entire world upon, right? Right? I had one, one guy uh, that I had been meeting with, he had listed Cleveland Browns fan, right? And uh, at least in Cleveland, right, sports is a huge part of our identity, right? I said, imagine how foolish it would be if you built your entire identity around what? Being a Cleveland Browns fan, right? You would be perpetually depressed, right? Perpetually <laughs> discouraged, right? It would be a horrible thing to completely center and build your identity on. And so then I'll, I'll go into their list and I'll find, again, whatever they've listed for their sexuality. Maybe it's heterosexual or gay or lesbian. And I'll, I'll say, well, do you want to circle that, right? Do you, want to, do you want to center your entire identity, who you are, how other people are supposed to relate to you? Do you really want to focus and center it solely on this, Right? And what I'm trying to get them to understand is that to center their identity, right, on something as ephemeral and something as ultimately incoherent as their feelings is not a viable pathway to live, right? If modern identity says, again, we go deep inside of our feelings, we figure out who we are, and then we go out to the world to demand who we are, Right? Our feelings are constantly changing. Right? Our feelings are constantly affected by a whole host of different factors. Right? We want our identity to be, to be centered on something that is much more stable than that. So talking to, talking to strugglers, talking to people who hold to a different view of sexuality than you do, I oftentimes find that, that pursuing that identity piece can be an actual uh, much more fruitful area of conversation for them. Uh, Finally, I'll just say this, uh, strive strive for relational credibility is a phrase that I'll use. Strive for relational credibility. Uh, Oftentimes I find that sometimes the message that we are trying to proclaim does not map onto the life that we live. That the message of God's love, the message of the gospel, the good news that we're trying to proclaim doesn't quite map onto the way that we live our life. Right? In Matthew 5.16, we're told, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In John 13.35, we're told this, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. And sometimes I find that the lack of compelling life message, right, from us individually actually is one of the most frequent roadblocks for people who are struggling for people who are in the LGBT community, right? We, we, like Sam is saying, we are trying to get them to move from this community over to this community, right? To the church, to this church family, but what we're inviting them to is something that at the end of the day, frankly, they don't want to have anything to do with. They see people who are unkind, who are joyless, who are sad, who, who want to play gotcha politics in their conversations, who, who use their language in a hurtful way, not in a way that edifies and so, friends, when we are trying to have ministering and helpful, loving conversations and relationships with people, again, I think a final question that we can ask ourselves is Is the life that I live, right? Is the life of love that I live with these individuals, does it map onto and does it testify to the words that I'm saying to this person, right? Does my life match up to the message? And sometimes I find a little bit of a disconnect there, right? That we want to preach about sexual morals and sexual ethics, but we don't want to have these people over into our home. We don't want to sacrifice our time, our energy, our resources, right? Sometimes I find that a a mom or a dad will say, well, we've had a few conversations and yet they still don't want to change. They still feel this way, right? Not understanding that, like for all of us, sanctification is a process and that change is oftentimes difficult, that people don't just get changed in the space and time of a conversation, but in the space and time of a relationship. And so when we're thinking about these relationships, we want to be people who have the relational credibility that maps onto the good news of the gospel that we're proclaiming. So I hope those things are helpful for you.